This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is a re-edited, longer version of an interview I did with poet James Langenbach in 2017. Langenbach died on July 29th this year, so this is in honor and remembrance of his work. How do we become ourselves? How do we continually recognize ourselves? What is both scary and attractive about losing a sense of self by going out into the world in some kind of threatening way and then recuperating that sense of self, rebuilding it again in some way. We'll be back with James Langenbach's interview after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show, hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show, and it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today 
was poet, critic, and teacher James Langenbach. Langenbach died on July 29th, and this is a re-edited longer version of an interview I aired in 2017 on his poetry collection, Earthling. He wrote six collections of poetry, including Forever, The Iron Key, and Draft of a Letter. Langenbach published nine books on criticism and craft, including The Lyric Now, How Poems Get Made, and The Resistance to Poetry. His work appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation, among others. Langenbach taught at the University of Rochester and the Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers. In his collection, Earthling, he explored issues of mortality, the mystery of the self, sorrow, the environment, transcendence, and what grounds us on earth. We began the interview focused on what transitions a group of poems into a coherent collection. Well, that's a crucial question, and in my experience, uh, you figure that out in a new way with every book you write. There's no, all the skills you developed putting together your last book suddenly become irrelevant when you're putting together the next book. And I've come to realize that this is a good thing because it means that you're actually moving forward and doing something. So in this case, I didn't begin with any a notion of a theme or an idea. I, I don't work well that way. Um, I'm not good at getting ideas, I suppose. But what happened was the first poem that I wrote was the last poem in the collection called uh, Pastoral. And when I wrote that poem, it just, something clicked. It sounded a little different to me. The tone was different than the poems I had written years previously in uh, the previous book called The Iron Key. There was a kind of oh, sort of post-experiential amusement to it, a kind of sweetly weary tone that contained the possibility of a kind of quietly wry humor. And I liked that. And then it was a matter of trying to figure out how I did it so that I could do it again. <laughs> and, you know, one poem led to another. And uh, the themes of the collection, the sense of of being this little inhabitant of the earth and looking up and out at the big wide questions of of eternity and mortality grew out of that effort to keep inhabiting that tone. So you said while you were answering that that you're not good at getting ideas, but you have a whole book of poems. So how does how do you, what does that mean? <laughs> I suppose that you could extract ideas from the poems, but I don't write from ideas. Um, I, I think, you know, this is something I often tell students that, you know, you can have all, or let me put it this way, you know, every human being who has ever lived, who has experienced the most profoundly devastating and joyous emotions, but almost none of those people write poems. Um, so having those feelings, having ideas, having a, a thing that you want to write about, that just gets your foot in the door. And what you have to have is a kind of intimate relationship with the language in a way that makes something spark, qua words on the page, a sentence that's happening. And until that happens, the idea won't matter. Um, 
Uh, and it begins to matter when you, you know, find a way of moving the words around that feels exciting and captures you and pushes you forward. That's my experience anyway. So basically, you find your way into poem more through the language or the syntax than the idea or an image. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I, I've got ideas. I've got ideas and images, you know, till the cows come home. But it doesn't make me write a poem because uh, a poem, for the reader's experience, is these little black marks on the page that come together to make words that come together to make sense. That's all is. Um, everything else, the ideas, the images, that's in your head. So you have to uh, you have to put everything into the language, and the language just be the force that prompts the poem and motivates the poem and and makes the poem happen, both for the writer and the reader. Um, and when you feel that happening as a writer, when you feel you know, that something is clicking and the language is moving you forward almost beyond your volition. You know, it's just the best feeling in the world. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not magic, but it feels magical. That's interesting, though, too, because there must be some almost synchronicity in in your universe, maybe, or maybe maybe it's just natural. What you're saying is that everyone has the same feelings because you get into these poetry, these poems, through the language. But there are repeating themes through through your poems. You know, I noticed everything from you know talking about dogs and forests and um, sort of the mystery of the self that came into many poems. But that's not where you started off from. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're absolutely correct, um, and I'm aware of that. And I came at a late stage of putting the book together to capitalize on those things. But the, that's not where the poems start. You the poems happen, and then you know you you got two, and then you got five, and then you got eight, and then you start to look at them, and I, I try to figure out what the hell I'm writing about. But I don't know what I'm writing about until that point. I, what I do know is that I'm inhabiting the language and it's taking me somewhere. And then I have to become self-conscious about that and figure out where it's taken me. And that, to that point, we notice, oh, my God, I wrote three poems about the dog. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> or more importantly, uh, I say, oh, I, I seem to be preoccupied uh, with questions of mortality here. Uh, I didn't even realize that was, you know, so important to me until I saw it. And then, you know, it's then there are more obvious things to say about that. At a certain point in the process of writing the book, my mother did die, and uh, and that that became an important location uh, for several of the poems. Uh, and in a way, what I was already writing was an arena that was ready to deal with something like that. However, at the same time, it was extremely difficult. Uh, after my mother's death, it, of course, was very powerful to me, and I knew that I wanted and needed to write about it, but I couldn't. I didn't write anything about it for almost three years uh, because I couldn't find a language. 
I had all the feelings, but it took me a long time to find a language. A lot of your poems have the forest in them. It's either a setting, it's being lost and found mm-hmm. in the forest, it's trees growing, maybe even magically in the desert. So right. I, I did figure that the forest was more than the forest in your poems, but yeah, um, I know you live near a tiny little forest on a hill, but um, right. T- right. tell me about the forest, you know, the imagery or the, or the real meaning for that for you. Yeah. Well, certainly, as you point out, across the street from me uh, is a, a little a place called Cobbs Hill, and there is a reservoir there and a very beautiful little old-growth tree forest, you know, right there in the, in the edge of the city and the edge of the suburbia. Uh, and it's a location where I go running all the time and which I find really interesting, uh, this sort of little so wilderness in the middle of the opposite of wilderness. So that's the rural location. But then <clears throat> what began to happen to me in writing these poems, uh, in part because I was trying to explain that tone I tried to describe in the first poem I wrote, Pastoral, is that the poems began to seem simultaneously about particular places, but also kind of spookily allegorical. No matter if it rains, it's time to follow the path into the forest. Now, literally, basically in my head when I wrote that, I think I'm thinking, oh, God, I have to walk the dog and it's raining. But if I put it that way, it starts to sound like I'm talking about something mysterious and allegorical, the path, the forest, we must go. And I, I like that sort of feeling. It's part of that tone that 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 you're working with event that seems completely ordinary and mundane, yet at the same time, weirdly on the cusp of reality. Um, And it's a way of thinking about poetic language that really interests me because um, it's, it's not so common, it seems to me, in contemporary poetry. If you go back, you know, through great poets in the language to Blake or Marvell or something, you see it all the time. Uh, the language that seems uh, blatantly symbolic of a world other than the one that's just right there at your feet. But most contemporary poetry, say, since Robert Lowell in the middle of the 20th century, has tried to use language to just put us right here in the real in the life of the speaker of the poem. So I liked the sense of recuperating allegory and and otherworldliness and a sense of the mysterious beyondness of what might seem like ordinary experience. Hence the forest. <laughs> it's funny, I had the book open to that exact poem because um, by the same author it's called, and that's probably my favorite poem in the book, and oh, great. it uh, it does start with that, you know, image of the rain and following the path. And then the next line, you say the same people will be walking the same dogs or if not the same dogs, dogs that behave in similar fashions. And one of the things I noticed through some of these your poems, you have another line in a in, in a poem called it, it's a longer poem. It is called Climate of Reason, where at the end, mm-hmm. the, the 
speaker is in the desert and it says in the middle of the desert, right. you might be anyone. And I was yeah. curious throughout some of your poems, uh, I wrote down sort of what can we learn from sameness? Meaning, is there a generic quality mm. we all share of just being alive where maybe we're not interchangeable, but I felt like that was something you were saying. Not not, not that we were interchangeable, yeah. but that, that we could be anyone, maybe? Yeah. I suppose this is something that I've come to by having spent so many years trying to be a writer. <laughs> uh, because one of the things I've realized, and in a, in a way this is obvious, but it's also very difficult, is that over the years, when you're working at writing, trying to be the writer that you are, it's actually really difficult to sound like yourself on the page. And it seems like that ought to be the easiest thing in the world. It seems like it ought to be easy, like waking up and looking in the mirror and going, oh, there I am. But it's not like that at all. It's really, really hard to get those words on the page perfectly to embody the way you think or the way you speak or the way you you know feel about things uh, to get it actually to sound just like you. Uh, so because I'm so aware of the work it takes simply to be yourself on the page, um, I suppose that makes me think about that as, an, as a, a beautiful conundrum that's taking place not only in the act of writing, but just in the act of being alive. You know, what is, how do we become ourselves? How do we continually recognize ourselves? What is both scary and attractive about losing a sense of self by going out into the world in some kind of threatening way and then recuperating that sense of self, rebuilding it again in some way. Um, so I think you're right. The, the, the poems end up being about those kinds of issues. And for me, it, it grows out of the very act of trying to make those poems. Yeah, you also have a line in that poem that says, did you know it takes a million seeds to make one tree? Your chances of surviving in the forest, of replicating yourself, are slim. And to me, I sort of took that as, like, it is so amazing that we're even here on this planet. But I'm, yeah. I'm curious about yeah. this, this of you know, your idea of replicating yourself. What, what, what were you thinking about? I'd read this quite wonderful book about trees, and I'm ashamed that I can't remember the author because it's an amazing book. Um and it's one of those books that I never imagined I would be that interested in trees, that I would read a 600-page meticulous account of how trees grow and reproduce themselves and behave, as it were, uh, in different situations. And I was so struck by the fact that, as I say there, it, it's according to this this book by this biologist is absolutely true that generally it takes, you know, a million seeds from one tree to just get one seed that germinates, grows and becomes another full fledged tree. If that's, you know, that's, those are the odds. And it moved me because it seemed like a beautiful and threatening mirror for 
human experience. You know, the the you know a tree is so there, and we as human beings are similarly so there. But w- what will be we leave behind? You know, um, we each have what? Let me do the math here. <laughs> eight great-grandparents, is that right? And most of us don't know their names. Uh, So, you know, in two generations, we disappear, even to the people we're closest to. Um, So it's that sense of tenuousness, a beautiful tenuousness of, of human life or of life in any sense that I suppose I'm thinking about when I say that the chances of surviving, the chances of replicating yourself are slim. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I found a similar sense to that, but more also in the material world with your um, poem, Petite Maison. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Sure. You know, that, that poem, I'm trying to think about the best way to describe it, and I suppose the best way would just to be very plain about it. Not all my poems end up working this way. In fact, most of the poems, in as much as there's an experience recounted in them, the experience is completely imagined. I've made it up. Uh, but this one is does grow out of something that happened, uh, which was that I and my family of uh, came to live for a time in this tiny little medieval corkscrew village on a hill in the south of France. And we arrived and we, you know, were setting ourselves up in this little cottage. And then there was this, you know, as the poem says, this little bistro and we decided to eat there that night. And, and it was, it was lovely, but it was nothing. You know, it really was, it was barely, like a professional restaurant. It was just, you know, this place, you know, in the front room of a house where meals were served and people came. And it was so charming and so welcoming and beautiful. And then, as the poem says, the next morning, we walked down the street and it was gone. It was the the furniture was out in the street. It had closed up. We didn't realize that 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 night was its swan song. It was it it was the the last hurrah, the goodbye of the place. And it was kind of mildly devastating uh, because it had been so lovely and so sweet and it was so transitory. Um, and that happened, oh, I don't know, probably 20 years before I wrote the poem. Uh, so it was something that obviously stuck with me and I suppose, and I wrote it late in the making of this book, I suppose it was when the variety of themes that we've been talking about, about permanence and selfhood 
and you know the basic primal existence on earth and so on were coming together for me and i was able to use that little narrative as uh, again a kind of allegory for how it feels to discover your transitoriness in your deepest simplest pleasures of daily life in in some of your poems you have these sort of um I don't know if you would call them titles or um, small phrases, but they seem like they seem like actually names, like you're naming things. And I don't know if that's a poetic um, strategy or something that happens, but they're all capitalized. And instances would be in a poem, you have something called the Ministry of Public Instruction. Another one you have <laughs> the romance of pleasant thought, and another one yeah. forest of of wearisome sadness. So these are like titles; they're every word is capitalized. I'm just wondering if if this is something I don't know about poetic theory, or if it's just a uh, you know something that you have. But um, can you talk about that? Sure, um, it's completely idiosyncratic to me. It has, though I'm sure that other poets somewhere have have done this. It, it's just a it's part of the effort of the poems to try to make ordinariness seem weird. So in the first one you mentioned this poem called Suitcase, it it's it's uh presenting the experience of living in a small room and finding life there Adequate. I'll read a few lines of this. Um, you're deciding the desk should face the window in summer when the sun is overhead. Or face the wall in winter when the light's so low it hits you in the eyes. In winter, there are no distractions. You study the wall. But in summer, the trolley stops in front of the Ministry of Public Instruction. So what I'm going for there is a kind of Kafka-esque way in which you know, the naming the institution and the building seems very specific, but weirdly unexplained at the same time. Now, there really are buildings uh, in Italy called the Ministry of Public Instruction. It's a real thing. And I have, in fact, a particular instance of that, the particular building called the Ministry of Public Instruction in Rome, in Trastevere. So I'm thinking about a particular place, but I don't want that particular place to be aroused by the poem. I just want the kind of aura of that that phrase that seems like something that is named and official and specific, but at the same time, kind of mm, spookily other and mysterious. And those other titles that you mentioned are, are part of the same effort. You know, the, um, the one at the beginning of the poem that's called Allegory, it starts, and again, the phrase forest of wearisome sadness is capitalized, as you say. In the forest of wearisome sadness, where often I found myself wandering alone, I met my heart, who called to me, asking me where I was going. So there, really egregiously, I am trying to write an allegorical rather than realistic poem, almost in a kind of amusingly dorky kind of way. You know, here I am... I'm, I'm I'm like, you know, Dante Jr. strolling through the forest and I ran into my heart and we had this conversation. Uh, so to kind of give that forest 
a, a kind of, again, aura of weirdly specific but unexplained meaning through its title, The Forest of Wearisome Sadness. I'm, I'm setting up the machinery of the poem to, to let you inhabit this kind of liminal, spooky world. And is that something that comes in the first draft for you, or is that like finally crafting and getting there later? It depends. In ways that you've given me, interestingly, the opportunity to describe already, the writing of the poems and the accumulation of the poems into what begins to occur to you as some kind of coherent book is is a process, as I've said. So at the beginning, you're working in the dark more than you are three years later or seven years later uh, as you continue to to write these poems. Um, so this poem was written relatively late. So I was interested in finding strategies to create the kind of effect I just described apropos of this poem. And uh, once I had discovered the possibility of using phrases like that, the forest of wearisome sadness or the romance of pleasant thought. Um, that happened very quickly in this case uh, because I already had a sense of what I was trying to do and what phrases like that could do for me. Um, but in other cases, earlier on in the process, uh, it would have been more a sense of, of groping and trial and error and discovery through meticulous but always a little bit uh, haphazard uh, work on writing and revising and revising and revising the poem. So that that poem that you, you read from about the suitcase and being in a small room, I noticed that mm -hmm. at the end, it was the second to last poem, you kind of went back to that theme of a suitcase. Yes. Um, yes. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, um, that happened first by accident and then by design. The first poem in the book that I read a few lines from is called Suitcase, as you say, and the description of living in the room is a kind of analogy for how it feels for the satisfaction one might take in packing a suitcase, as if you're putting all the little pieces of your life neatly in an arrangement and, and you exist in that little arranged space. And that poem came relatively early on in the process of making the poems for this book. And at a certain point, I, I was pretty sure I wanted it to be the first poem in the collection. And then the poem, the long poem in six parts, which is the penultimate poem in the book, which returns to the image of the suitcase, that was the last poem I wrote for the collection. And as I was writing it, I became conscious in a way that I only could have at that stage in the development of the book that this was going to, I felt like it was going to have to go at or near the end. I felt like it was going to be a bigger poem. Uh, it felt a little volcanic to me as I was writing it. And because it's a longer poem in six parts, it, it took some time to write, um, and I also tried not to push it. Uh, so, you know, I had three parts, and then I had four, and then I had five, and this was over a period of many months. 
uh, and I was sort of forcing myself to wait to see how the poem would conclude. And what is often difficult about concluding a longer poem in my experience is that the danger is that you sort of methodize it. You're looking for a way to close it up. And so you naturally look like back to the beginning of the poem or to, you know, previous language in the poem or previous images that the poem's language evokes and you bring them back as a way of tying up the poem. And that can work, but usually it can work all too well. And it, it makes the poem seem kind of predictably circular. Um, and it can kill or diminish the energy of the poem often. Really what the poem needs to do is move to somewhere unexpected and unprecedented. So I don't remember why, <clears throat> but the meditation of the suitcase came back to me and it does not occur anywhere else in this poem, though it seems like a part of the world of this poem. But I was immediately, of course, very aware that I was echoing a different poem, not part of this, this sequence. Um, and I liked that feeling that in, in ending this poem was reaching beyond its parameters to the larger world of this group of poems. And that's what enabled me to figure out how to, to write the ending. And this poem that that was a part of, it's called The Harbor, and it is, um, uh, it has six parts. I think it's really deep into these questions about when you love something deeply, um, your mother, your mother's death, um, who we are in the universe, um, what, what, Mm -hmm. This line, which I loved, which is more mysterious, more inexplicable, dying or staying alive. So can you talk yes. about maybe getting all of these questions about speaker and and subject and death and mortality around this idea of a harbor? You know, I, it's, it's a it's a terrific question. And I know it's a terrific question because I've never thought about it. <laughs> I, I just... I've taken it for granted. I had, I, I, well, here's where I could start. I was, I was rereading Proust. Um, I had for a six month period, a lot of time on my hands and I, and I reread all of Proust, which was both, you know, thrilling and unbelievable. And at times, you know, really strenuous hard work, but that's, part of what makes the cumulative experience of it so unbelievably, overwhelmingly gorgeous. And there was an image <clears throat> somewhere in the middle there of a village that was on a kind of ragged coastline so that you looked across the houses and it would seem like the sail of the ship was going between the houses because there was a little sliver of water into the village. And I just thought that was such a magical image and I, I borrowed that. Um, and I suppose the, the harbor then became a location for a sense of human experience that seems simultaneously safe and enclosed and, and small, and yet at the same time invaded by, you know, forces much larger than itself. 
that the the sea is right there. The vastness of the sea is right there, hidden in the middle of the village. Um, and I suppose that the implications of that particular landscape were what was attractive to me and and ended up being why I located those feelings of the poem, which you described so well, in that particular place. I like the idea, too, that a harbor can also be sort of a safe place where you get away from it all and yet you can't. You know, you're still yeah. you're still asking these questions like how could Earth last longer than ourselves? You're asking questions about, you know, how we grow over time and childhood and mm-hmm. uh, and when we're never safe. Yeah, that's right. Um yeah, that's exactly right. And that's scary the poem suggests, but it's also completely necessary. We wouldn't love being alive and treasure it if that weren't the case. And I suppose the poem is about really facing the implications of that, facing the implications of the knowledge of one's mortality and acknowledging how just deeply scary that is, but also recognizing how it, and really it alone, is what throws you back into your beautiful love relationship with being alive. Which which brings me to the title, Earthling, which is a poem in the book. It's, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> what joins us all. We're all earthlings. As far as I know. And but it's also it's also a kind of bird. And I I'm wondering if you can just share some thoughts you had about the title and and that poem. And sure. Um, Well, the the title came to me, I'd say, about two thirds of the way through the the making of these poems. And it came to me uh, in a particular way, because as the epigraph to the book suggests, and I didn't know this until I discovered this just a few years ago. Though we think, or I always thought of it, the word earthling as being a you know, product of sort of you know, 1950s science fiction culture, you know, take me to your leader. Um, the word is actually one of the oldest words in the English language. And it, it, uh, it means, it's, it's like our original word for a plowman. An earthling is someone who t- takes care of the earth, who, who inhabits the fecundity of the land. Um, And in the very old Anglo-Saxon texts in which the original forms of this word appear with that meaning, it also ends up referring to a bird that it's theorized followed the plow, a particular kind of bird that, you know, followed the plow to, you know, you know, what to, you know, try to scavenge the scattered seeds or, you know, whatever was was happening there. And I like that, too, that there was this multiplicity of meanings, um, you know, that it spoke to my basic sense of, as you say, all of us as being these, you know, little beings that are placed on earth and are intimate with the earth. And yet it was also this bird that, you know, is this being that has this ability to fly above and and transcend. So I was entranced with all of that. And yet I didn't I didn't want the sort of David Bowie connect 
connotations of the word to go away. I wanted there to be the sort of ghost of that. Um, I liked that feeling too. So in the little poem that I called Earthling, it's, you know, it's, it's probably the shortest poem in the book. Um, And it's, you know, it's a, a weird little thing. It's about sort of looking up and imagining the, whatever it is, the, the gods in heaven, uh, you know, preparing a beautiful meal for us and how you, you know, how it's, it's a gift and we want to go there and, but we don't want to go there. <laughs> can't, can't we eat later? Can't we, <laughs> can't we play a little bit longer before we, we have to do this? Um, so those are, you know, all the things that came together and that I was thinking about when I, when I used that title to gather the poems up. Is there anything else about the collection or a certain poem you want to talk about before I get to the end questions? Um, golly. I suppose there's one aspect of the poems that occurs to me that we didn't happen to settle on is that the poems, perhaps to a degree that might seem on the edge of being excessive, refer to other poems, other uh, works of literature. There's, you know, in the in the long poem called The Crocodile, for instance, there's a whole section of the poem, it's not long, that is nothing but a quotation from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. It's just, it's all Shakespeare, none of it's me. Um, and I found the the harnessing of quotation in this way to be really exciting uh, when it worked um, because to my ear anyway, that, that passage as it occurs in the poem is, it's just perfect. (laughs) And I love the fact that it's there, not because I wrote it, but because I recognized it's absolutely perfect resonance within the context of what I had made. Uh, and I like paying homage to forces outside of myself in that way. I suppose it's another way of recognizing what the book says thematically, as you pointed out about the, 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 the tenuousness of selfhood and identity and the beautiful recognition of our, of our, the way we bleed into other beings and and uh, and use the language that has been used by other people before us. This this seems to me a, a beautiful thing and not something to be uh, suppressed or hidden. Yeah, I noticed that in the longer poems. I have that written down that there, there's changes in time and voice, and and you do mm-hmm. um, you do include these sections from other poets. And it's it's really a change in time, also that I thought was yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I and it, you know, especially in the longer poems, it suppose it contributes to the sense of, you know, allegorical, slightly otherworldly timelessness. Because you know, even though it's describing a particular narrative or whatever, it's suggesting by these gestures that it's also you know, a timeless or, or archetypal experience, that it is not unique to this particular instance. Like my mind uh, wants to go to this place, and I don't know if it's false or not, but when I look at your 
your book and it has four parts. I'm trying to think like, what does that four parts mean? Maybe it means that each one <laughs> is a season and it's four seasons on earth. Am I looking too hard? <laughs> well, I don't think there's any such thing as looking too hard. I was not aware of that. But if you find it there, then it's there. Um, and I will learn something <laughs> from your perception. I didn't, it, it fell into four parts because that was the way in which the poems asked to be organized. I didn't have any notion that it should have four parts. I didn't have any notion that it should have any particular number of parts. I, and I know every other poet I know, you, you spend a long time organizing the poems into a book. Uh, it, it, you know, I spent about two years simply arranging the poems in the order in which they finally occur. And again, that seems like that ought to be really easy, but it's really hard. And over the course of that, you always end up having to cut poems that you think are really good from the book because they won't fit the arc of feeling and discovery that the book's order is coming together to create. And at a certain point, it's sort of out of your hands and you have to be guided by what the poems do. And when it all clicks in my experience, I mean, even though I had, you know, a zillion different orders that I tried, once it finally came together in this way, it felt completely locked. I couldn't move a single line. Uh, the way the poems move one to the next and the way the sections unfold one to the other seemed to me at this point completely inevitable. Can you read from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? You know, in thinking about this, you know, there there are a lot of things I could choose. I love language and I, I love literature uh, as much as I love any other kind of experience. But what I've chosen is a novel, a passage on the last page of a novel called Fading My Parmachine Bell. It was published in 1987 by Joanna Scott, uh, an American novelist. And she is my wife. <laughs> uh, she was, when she wrote this page, it's charming to think of being able to use this phrase, my girlfriend. <laughs> and I remember being in the room on the day that she wrote this, and she wrote it in a kind of trance, and I have always thought that as a passage of prose, this is one of the most beautiful things that I know. I have thought for years, for decades, that I would, if if I could, I would just take this passage and divide it up into lines and present it as the most beautiful poem I'd ever written because it seems to me so completely gorgeous, uh, both as a construction of the English language and as a, an emotional expression of what it means to be alive. So what's happening here is that an old man who's been the protagonist of the book has gone on this long, crazy journey, and he's come back to his house and he sees his son, who he, whom he has abandoned and to whom he has returned through the window. And then, uh, and the old man is speaking. He narrates the book, uh, and this is um, how it ends. I pound my fist against the glass. The window does not shatter. He is intent upon his task, unaware of me as if he were still a half pint curled upon my lap. The kitchen is neat. 
the counters clean, the floor swept. Who taught the boy his chores and then left him I do not know. I would not have predicted my son was capable of surviving solitary. I call out to him through the glass. He cannot hear me. Is there a scar upon his brow? Has he forgiven me? He cannot hear me over the rain. This is the reason. There is a foul magic in the night. The sky assaults us. The rain creates a din upon the roof, claps into puddles, strikes the glass. The wind pursues its maelstrom course around the house. We are so close, yet I cannot enter. The heavens drown out my voice. He does not know that I have come home for him. He need not be alone. If only he would turn. Do you want to say anything else about that? It it moves me deeply in a way that has moved me many times before because of the cadences of the language, the repetitions, uh, the gorgeous, palpable, visually imagistic clarity of the writing. And then just the sentiment of it is so poignantly moving to me the the flawed troubled misguided love that's being expressed by being so close to someone and yet divided from them forever separate by that glass by that window i mean it just seems primarily evocative of something deep uh, about the human condition to me at the same time that it is about particular characters in a particular narrative. So in all these ways, it moves me. And it, and it moves me because I just remember the day, the moment uh, in which it was written. And I was there. <laughs> um, and it, it shaped my life completely. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was really hard or changed a lot from the first draft or just something that you like. Sure. Um, I think I'll I'll take you up on the really hard part. Um, And uh, this will amplify something I had occasion to say earlier in our conversation, which was that after my mother's death, and I should say that she was very old and, and she died swiftly. So it was, you know, all good in, in a number of ways, even though it was devastating. Um, and as I said, it took me a long time to figure out how to write about that or how to inhabit those feelings. And I, and I had a lot of false starts, a lot of poems that didn't go anywhere. And it wasn't until I had this odd idea for other reasons of writing a poem that was spoken by a crocodile that I was able to get at these feelings. Um, so I'll read the first section of this poem called The Crocodile, which does not yet mention my mother, but it's setting up a voice that can do so. I don't mean it to be you know, a completely straightforward dramatic monologue, like you're supposed to actually believe that a crocodile is talking to you. You'll see that it sort of floats in and out of the speaker sort of being the idea of a crocodile. So it seems simultaneously to be a person and this inarticulate beast talking to you. And it was the assumption of that voice 
that allowed me to access and write about the feelings with which I had been grappling. Um, and so I worked a long time, and it was very hard to finally get to these lines, uh, which are these. What I wanted was to lift my body in unnatural postures high above the earth, to dance, to live beyond ideas. Imagine feeling assured you were beautiful. Girls wanted to run their fingers over my skin. Also, guys, I bit off their hands. If called to, I could wait beneath the water a long time. I could let a bird pick leeches from my tongue. So in the moment of youth when other people embrace passion, I fell back on discipline. My throat was capable of many different sounds, but the pleasure was in keeping silent, letting parts of me be seen. Sometimes a plover mistook me for a log, but that's not deception. I really look like a log. I survived the great extinctions. I pretended to be myself. To let you know me, I need only move my eyes. You know, it goes on to having created that voice to, to talk about my mother and the loss of her. Do you want to talk about anything else with that? Um, well, I, I guess I could say, um, perhaps if I just read these few more lines from the fourth section, where this is the climax of the poem, and you'll see that it's it's imagining the death of someone as if through the eyes of this inarticulate beast, the crocodile, but at the same time giving you access to some very intimate and private human experience. So these are the lines. When my mother died, I was right beside her. She'd been unconscious for a day. My sister and my father were there too. I leaned down close to her left ear. I whispered, thank you for everything you did for me. Thank you especially for what you did for our girls. Then, immediately, the color left her face. She was no longer in her body, and she sank beneath the lagoon. My hope is that you know, that, that final line where these very humanly vulnerable lines suddenly explode back into the imagined world of the crocodile in the lagoon, that there's a kind of, you know, quiet, unnerving magic to that, or that's what I felt. Um, and without that arena of the imagined encasing and presenting those human emotions it it didn't sing to me in the same way it wasn't it wasn't possible for me in the same way so i had to by creating this fiction of another kind of speaker it paradoxically brought me closer to the reality of what i had experienced and felt and said one of my favorite lines is is in that poem you just write Someday I won't be hungry, which I find mm. so devastating and funny at the same time. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, that they're, the, the poem tonally uh, is various. Um, and though it's, it's a very serious poem and talking about harrowing things, there are moments in it that are kind of wryly funny at the same time. And I appreciate that you, that you hear that. Um, there's a kind of, you know, silly abject weariness to that line that, uh, uh, that I also find uh, amusing. I'm, I'm glad it comes through. Yeah, because you're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. Where do you write? I write mostly in our house, in my study. And uh, for years, I was like 15 years. It was this beautiful room in the back of the house in the basement, which because the house is on the hill, on a hill, it's really the first floor at that point. And I loved being down there in my little burrow. But about two years ago, I moved up to the top of the house. I don't know why. It was just, I couldn't explain it. I wanted a different view. <laughs> so now I'm very happily in this little room up at the top, looking out over the trees rather than up through them. So, and that's where I do all of my writing. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well. You know, I am a homebody, so I don't go to another place. I have a very active life as a committed amateur musician. And since early childhood, I've played the piano and I've never stopped doing that somewhat seriously. Though in the last seven years, as some poems in Earthling suggest, I have been learning to play the lute. So... And I do play the lute, not very well, <laughs> but I work at it. And it's nice to be a beginner at something and to just have this beautiful little task of learning to play this gorgeous music from the Renaissance on this beautiful archaic instrument. So that's a place where I go um, when I can't write. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? That has... Absolutely. And without question, for now a few months shy of 37 years, been my wife, the novelist Joanna Scott. And it is likewise the case with her. She's the author of 12 works of fiction. And I have read and reread and read again every single sentence that she has written. And she has done the same for me. And my life as a writer is unthinkable without that um, we know each other and we know each how the other inhabits language so intimately uh, that sometimes it, though it's not literally the case in any way, it sometimes feel that, feels that we've written these things together. I, that, that, that exchange and my trust in her absolute straightforward, honest ability to hear when what I'm doing is right and when what I'm doing is wrong is, is, uh, is just everything to me. And how have you dealt with rejection? You keep writing. There's a lot of rejection out there. Uh, in fact, that's what there mostly is. <laughs> you know, even when you, when you write a book and you're proud of it, you know, you feel good for about 10 seconds and then, you know, you're back in the wilderness because really it's not 
interesting having achieved something. It's interesting groping to achieve something. So you always live in this space of failure and rejection or potential rejection. And I suppose I would say it really doesn't bother me that much uh, because it's how it is. And if you're not feeling that, you're not risking something, you're not pushing out into the world. So uh, we writers must feel it and we must inhabit it. And all you can do is to keep writing because it is a part of the act of writing to feel that, that rejection. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> My favorite word? You know, it always seems to me that, you know, poets are supposed to like, you know, fancy words like incarnadine or something. But really, my favorite words are the simplest words like, you know, the or and or very. I Nothing gives me more pleasure when in a poem I can use in a very particular way one of the most bland and basic words of the language and make it seem just right. Um, so I'll pick very among, among those words I listed. That will be my favorite today. If you like today's show with James Longenbach, author of the poetry collection Earthling, check out my interview with Edward Hirsch on his collection, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. We talked about longing, ephemeral beauty, and finding words at the most difficult moments of life. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.